This episode of On Comedy Writing is brought to you by HBO on Amazon. That's right, I said HBO on Amazon. Two of your favorite companies are teaming up to give you a deal. Just like Peanut Butter and Jelly, Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen, or Steve Johnson and Shab Krish. Those are my parents. They have HBO Go, but if you don't, what are you doing? An HBO subscription includes instant streaming of unlimited access to addictive dramas, hilarious comedies, movies, no adjective there, and so much more. Fans of this show will love watching Veep, Silicon Valley, Mr. Show, a bunch of great stand specials, and you know what? I think you like the dramas too. You, get, you can get your free seven-day trial for HBO by going to boardwalkaudio.com slash Amazon HBO. After the trial, you get unlimited access to anything on HBO for just $14.99 a month. $14.99 a month. That's a good deal for HBO. That's like one, one night of not eating Postmates. Just don't eat Postmates one night, you freaking loser. Just, just get HBO instead. Once again, get your seven-day free trial for HBO by going to BoardWalkAudio.com slash Amazon HBO. It's not TV, it's HBO, which is brought to you by Amazon. This is a BoardWalk Audio podcast. On comedy writing, on comedy writing. Thanks for downloading this episode of On Comedy Writing, the podcast about the business and craft of writing comedy. I'm your host, Alan Johnson, and we've got a great episode. But first, the best way to support this show is by going to boardwalkaudio.com slash oncomedywriting. Click the supporter artist button and shop on Amazon like you normally would, and I get a little kickback. Our guest this week is Nick Weiger, who you may know from his wonderful writing career, but definitely know from hosting what I think is the best podcast out there right now, Doughboys. I uh, learned of Weiger through Doughboys, but what I didn't know is I'd been watching his jokes for years at places like Funny or Die, Comedy Bang Bang, At Midnight, and more. He's one of the funniest guys out there, and I'm really glad I could get him on the show before I moved to New York. If you like this episode, I recommend checking out the ones we did with other Bang Bang people like Joe Saunders, Caroline Anderson, Neil Campbell, Scott Ackerman, or other Doughboys guests we've had, which is a lot like Maddie Smith, Evan Susser, and Van Robichaux. Uh, I'm forgetting people because there's so many. And then future episodes have a lot of overlap with a lot of Weiger's credits, so I'll be saying Weiger's name in this intro for many episodes to come. So, yeah. It's a great episode, and I was really happy to, to meet Nick. He's a great guy. So here is Nick Weiger. Uh, Nick, thanks for coming on the show. A pleasure. Uh, where are you from originally? I'm originally from Lakewood, California, which is a okay, suburb yeah. right next to Long Beach. So mm-hmm. about 40 minutes south of the 405 from here in L.A. Were you, uh, were you always interested in comedy? Yes. I mean, yes. I, I would say... Yeah, always extending to my youth. Yeah, sure. I, I can't remember a time when I didn't like watching comedy and mm-hmm. cracking jokes. So, yeah. What, what kind of uh, stuff did you watch? Well, I watched a lot of The Simpsons growing up. Mm-hmm. But then again, that, that show is... I'm, I'm 36. I'm about to turn 37. So I was born in 1980. So The Simpsons, I think, went on the air in 1989, 1990 was when the series premiered. So it came on towards the end of when I was in elementary school. And then I basically, I remember there was a whole period in fourth and fifth grade where 
Bart Simpson was scandalous. Yeah, right. And it, it was just like, I remember a kid wearing a shirt to school that said, I'm Bart Simpson, who the hell are you, and being sent home. <laughs> it's like a mix of that uh, Chevy Chevy Chase thing, right? Right, yeah. It was, it was a weird... It was a weird period where it was so like it, it, you know, The Simpsons now is what's what's safer and more just like accepted as part of pop culture than right. The Simpsons. It's just it, it, people are tired of it. But but there was a time when it was like this huge like crazy disruption of what people knew of what television was by being you know it was this animated show that was in it was in prime time, which was novel in and of itself, and then it had like a, a fairly decent edge to it. The idea of this this sort of like this. The dad wasn't even that dumb at first. Homer wasn't even that dumb season one, but it was more just about Bart at first, and like mm-hmm. like oh Bart is this rebellious youth, right? And then so that same kid he had a, who the hell are you got sent home came back with it later, and his mom had used a sharpie to change it to I'm Bart Simpson. Who the heck are you? And that <laughs> that made it palatable palatable for the kids of a Riley Elementary School. Really, that was just the the hell was the problem. Yeah, the hell was the issue, not yeah. the attitude. No, it, it, I mean the t- the tune was still a little bit of a thing, but I think people could handle it without the profanity. Uh, so, was The Simpsons kind of like the the big formative uh, comedy show for you? I think so. I think that's the first thing I remember where I'm like, oh, I really like this sensibility, and I really respond to specifically what's funny about this. I mean, certainly. I watched other comedies when I was younger, but that's also like you know you have the taste of a child. I think that was the first thing that I sort of took uh, have a perspective had a perspective on, and it's still the first thing that I'm like I still retain a fandom of into adulthood. Mm-hmm. So yeah, The Simpsons was a big thing for me. Uh, other other contemporary sitcoms at that time, you know. Seinfeld I got into later, but as a teenager I was into Seinfeld and Friends as well. Um, I mean, a lot of people are maybe skittish about citing Friends as an influence, but I thought it was right. a really good show. And I think because you know it's like very, it's very mainstream, and a lot of people like to shit on it. Maybe maybe there's less of that now, but certainly when it was on the air, people were would kind of shit on it. But it's like it's like a really well done piece of you know just sort of palatable mainstream entertainment, and it's got really sharp jokes and it's got really good acting. And I think it's like a really good example of what a mainstream sitcom can be. So, but also Conan O'Brien was a huge thing for me. Late mm-hmm. Night with Conan, the late night era, around when Late Show premiered. When was that? Ninety two, maybe. Uh, Feels yeah, like ninety four ish. Yeah. So whenever that era was, uh, yeah. So I would have been roughly entering high school. Late Show with Letterman, and then Late Night with Conan. That uh-huh. was like the one two. But I was certainly always more into Late Night uh, with Conan because it was just like. A little edgier, a little had a, a little bit of a younger feel, and mm-hmm. just look was just it really for me that was the first mainstream thing I saw where there was a lot of there was just like that element of like randomness and absurdity, right? Yeah, as kind of the the governing aesthetic, and so that was a big thing that informed my, my mm-hmm. sense of humor. Uh, were you, were you uh, in like middle school and high school kind of doing any performing comedy stuff or like any stuff that's no. kind of tangential to comedy? Maybe no, not really. Yeah. I mean, you know. No school projects? Like, no. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I was a big orchestra kid, so that oh, was really? my big thing. I was like, I, I, the performing I was doing was music. I played woodwinds, I played clarinet and saxophone and bassoon. Oh, wow. And played in the school orchestra and the school uh, symphonic winds, which was like the symphonic band. And then I played uh, in the marching band for a couple of years, and I played in the jazz band playing sax. And so, yeah, that's that's where really my focus was. And I thought that was what I was going to be doing, you know, for a time. And it, I, I was 
decent at it by high schooler standards, but by the end of high school, I decided to, it wasn't something I was going to pursue. But yeah, no, I was never involved in theater. Um, you know, just nothing aside from some, some very amateurish, just like VHS videos I'd shot with some friends yeah. and I wasn't even directing or writing. We were mm-hmm. just sort of like fucking around. There was really very little I did in terms of my own comedic output outside of just like cracking jokes. Mm-hmm. On a, you know, at lunch. Does uh, do you think like music plays any role in comedy for you at all? Um, not really. Yeah, I think it's just sort of informed. It just is kind of giving me a very specific bit of knowledge that I can use. You know, use sometimes just the idea that I know who like Shostakovich is or who mm-hmm. Sonny Rollins is okay. from my experience yeah. with you know classical music and jazz music. Um, and certainly I, I still use instrumental music, particularly classical and jazz as like a tool when I'm writing. Like I just like to have some sort of music going, but that doesn't have any sort of lyrics that distract me from the words that I'm writing. So yeah, I, I guess that, that's still, that's very indirect, but it's still a factor in that regard. Uh, so after high school, do you, do you know what you uh, want to be doing? Well, I originally thought I was going to be making video games. And that's what I tried to steer my career towards, and that's what I ended up doing out of college originally. So my first focus was, I think I went in as an undeclared major, but I was just in the field of physical sciences. And I went to UCLA, and it's a separate letters and sciences school from engineering school. So I didn't apply to the engineering school. So it was really not an option for me to do computer science, which is what I wanted to do. Because I figured that was a path towards video game programming, which is a path towards video game design. So as a, so, it, I ended up being a math major. Um, specifically, they had this thing, mathematics of computation, which is a kind of it's math, but it's got a computer programming element to it. So to me, it seemed like okay, that's the closest to what I that what will get me towards what I want to do ultimately. But. It was not something I was good at, and that, that took me a while. It was a while later when I sort of realized, like, oh, math is I can do it, but it's a struggle for me. It's a real round peg, square hole, to use a, a very, very uh, common cliche. <laughs> I just like I, I can try. I, like, just it's so much work for me to do, you know, calculus, and it, it and it's so much mental effort. At the same time, I had a roommate who was just like, it, it was just no work for him at all. He just like, it came, it was second nature. And he couldn't write a sentence, but he was just like amazing at math. And I, it took me time to realize that I was kind of the opposite, that I was more what, what, what are the, what do they say the brains are? Which one's right-brained, which oh, one's left-brained? Yeah, I'm not sure. Whichever the, the brain <laughs> yeah. is that is targeted towards more creative pursuits that's the brain that i have i i'm gonna say it's left brain i'm taking a shot at left brained i'm more left brained well tweet at nick weiger if it's uh, right brain right let me know which brain it is (laughs) i'm gonna say but whatever that's probably also bullshit too right that's probably also like a debunked thing (sighs) it's a good question i would assume that neurology had reached a point where because like that's the whole thing that oh people only use 10 percent of their brain right that's that's definitely bullshit that's just bullshit i feel like that's probably the same thing with right brain left brain i'm guessing it's just sort of like it's a useful it's a useful thing to say, but it's not actually something that that is how the brain actually works. Right? Yeah, I I, I go with that. Yeah. Okay, we're we're going with that. Yeah, we're me going and Alan are, are doubling down on <laughs> yeah. it's bullshit. Uh, so when you decide uh, you don't want to do that, right? right do, do you? Uh, what do you change your major to, or do you do? You... 
Well, I dropped out of school, right? And okay. I worked at first in IT. And then I got another job working. My first video game job was I was working as a games tester slash customer support rep at Activision. Okay. So I was just dealing with the first first bit I was there was pretty much only dealing with customers calling in to complain about their game not working. You know, some guy would buy Tony Hawk's Pro Skater Four oh, yeah. for the yeah. Hey, there you go. It's a great game. <laughs> oh yeah, we remember that series. Uh, THPS. Yeah, some some guy would buy a, a Tony Hawk for like. He'd buy it for PlayStation 2, but then he'd have a, his son would have an Xbox, and he'd like call Matt <laughs> that it wasn't working, and we'd have to oh, walk man. him through the mistake he'd made. <laughs> it was all it was all shit like that. Yeah. So it, it was fine. It, you know, it, I think I'm okay as a customer support rep because I'm just like my technique is that someone would be pissed off at Activision, and your job is just to be the shield of the co- the corporation. That's what you're paying you for. By the way, Activision at the time, I don't know if this is still the case, but they didn't consider any of their people working any of the people made doing game testing or customer support employees they were all private contractors okay. which is this whole screwy thing they, you, people run into that with the way corporations treat their low level workers it's like not just, give them benefits yes right? not get yeah. the benefits and not consider them part of the workforce so that was like just like an added little bit of of uh, how it made it just extra demeaning right, that you were yeah, there yeah. to be like on the front lines of like taking all the abuse from these pissed off moms and dads. Right. And then meanwhile, you weren't even part of the company. That's a, this is whatever. This isn't the labor complaints podcast. <laughs> um, we're pretty far afield from comedy writing, but so yeah, so it was basically there and someone would call up and they'd, they'd have their complaint and I, I would just sort of calm them down and, and mm-hmm. I would take their side against Activision. Like, I know, man, that sucks. That's bullshit. I don't know what to tell. I mean, that's that's horrible. I mean, here's what we can do, but I mean, I'm sorry I have to deal with that. Mm-hmm. So I dealt with that for a little bit and then I did games testing, which is basically you're playing through the same levels over and over again or the same parts of, of whatever ty- uh, style of game you're playing, whatever jo- the genre is, over and over again trying to find like small little flaws or big flaws but basically things that you know either break progression or any sort of bugs that might exist in an early prototype of a game before it gets shipped out so uh are, are you like uh, satisfied with this job at the time or you no like, this is yeah. i mean but i know that this is like okay this is a ladder wrong like i right. I, I don't like the job the job sucks the pay is very very bad uh the hours at times are really rough i was working graveyard shift for a while i was working a shift where we would start at 6 a.m. and then go. It was like a 12-hour shift, and it was because they were trying to ship a game that was coming out for Christmas. So yeah, I mean, it was a pretty not great job that I was also, you know, not super satisfied by. But I understood it as okay, this is what I have to do to get my foot in the door to get to game design, which is what I really want to do. So I do that for a bit. Then I went back to school, and by this point, I had realized that like you know, I should really probably be focused on something that's more attuned to my personal talents so I had switched to an English major I did like a year back in school then I dropped out again to take a job as a video game designer at this now defunct company called Seven Studios and I did that for most of my 20s oh wow yeah so at what point do you discover uh, UCB well the Upper Citizens Brigade Theater opened in I think 2005 2006 out here out here in LA and I'd known of it in New York and I'd known of the TV show obviously but prior to that, I'd been taking some classes and doing some shows at this really small theater that I think still exists under a, a different name just south of the UCLA campus called Ultimate Improv. And I think it's now called the Improv Space. 
Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, but it's this real, real small theater. It was actually, I, I remember they used to, when I first started the first workshop I took there, they did it at this now-closed restaurant called the Westwood Brew Co., and that, where there was also a stand-up open mic. So there'd be improv workshops and a stand-up open mic going on there in like one of their, their little adjunct spaces. And I, I started there, and then they opened the theater, and I remember it was originally a cell phone store, and then they closed the cell phone store and then just like put in theater seats and, and a backdrop in there. <laughs> wow. It, yeah, it really, I mean, it really looked janky, and it really was really shitty, and, you know, the crowds were very bad. I mean, did shows for like three people, eight people. <laughs> But it was really valuable experience in stage time. It wasn't a great working environment because there, you know, there were a lot of intra theater conflicts, particularly mm-hmm. be, uh, among the performers and the people who managed it. Oh, really? But yeah, but it was you know a place where I was there for several years, and I met a lot of really talented people there. Just you know, Matt Jones, who's a, oh. a very very successful actor, was uh, was working there. Heather Ann Campbell. Where I first met and worked with her, and she's—I'm still good friends with her, and she's an amazing talent as as a performer and a writer. And so, I—it was very valuable, even though I kind of, you know, again, didn't really like my time there in the same way that I didn't really like my time at Activision. Was, was this all uh, short form, or was it? It's a short form improv. Yeah, good, yeah. good question, Alan. Um, I because <laughs> it, it's, it's it, this is a, it's a granular distinction, but it's one that's I, I think important in terms of what improv is because I think a lot of people you know think of it as one thing but there's there within improv which is like the dorkiest thing you can do there is long form improv which is like considered like the more artsy version and there's short form improv which is considered the more mainstream sellout version mm-hmm. and so there's like feuds between these factions which is like it's really like people who play Magic the Gathering being right. mad, pe- mad at people who play Yu-Gi-Oh. You know, it's like it's like the dumb. Whatever your everything is here is stupid. Mm-hmm. Like this is all embarrassing. None of you should be proud about what you're doing. This is a dumb way to spend <laughs> your time. But so yeah, so you did short form improv there, and so my first exposure to long form improv was uh, was doing at the Upright Citizens Brigade, and when that opened in 2005, I sort of switched over to there was at both theaters for a time and then I got on a Herald team at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater and at that point I pretty much cut my ties with Ultimate Improv mm-hmm. and have been had been working there uh, exclusively uh, from that point on. What are your uh, your thoughts on uh, short form in general? Um, it's stupid, but it's <laughs> fine. I think short form has, you know, if you look at... Short form was my first exposure to improv via Whose Line Is It Anyway? And I mm-hmm. thought Whose Line Is It Anyway? You know, that's actually maybe an influence I should decide at some point. Whose Lines It Anyway I thought was so funny and I was watching the British version reruns on Comedy Central other other actually I'm remembering now this was another one I should have decided Kids in the Hall was the one I would watch in syndication on Comedy Central and that was like probably the sketch comedy I was most interested in and so I I think there is definitely value in in short form in terms of because if you just take an audience who's someone who doesn't know what improv is and you take them to Herald Night at the UCB Theater I think they're not going to necessarily have a good time because it's a little headier. It's, you know, it, it's it's a lot less accessible. There's a lot of unwritten rules that you kind of right. have to know to appreciate it. It's like just taking someone who's isn't aware, doesn't really know what competitive sports are and taking them to a cricket match. They're just going to be like, what what the hell is going on here? You know what I mean? And so if you just want someone to see like a just comedy, I feel like short form is a lot more accessible because it's kind of built in. Like, oh, a, every sentence has to start with a letter of the alphabet 
in you know in order like that's something that people can just wrap their heads around Mm -hmm. so uh, yeah i think short form certainly has its merit and as just something that's entertaining and also too you have to be you still have to be funny to do good short form like you you see very very good performers pulling that off and i mean like the people on whose line i mean who's these are some of the best improvisers in the world these are world-class you know, performers. So, yeah, I, I don't like the derision that comes from some long form elitist towards short form. Doing doing short form well is probably harder. I would say almost right. I mean, it's a different. It's, I think it's a different skill. set. It's a different skill set. Yeah. But yeah, I think they're both they're both challenging. Yeah. But yeah, you you are given you're kind of the restriction is imposed upon you, so you not only have to make it up, but you also have to be like, you know, whatever, doing three different styles of of theater at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you start taking classes at UCB, right? Uh, is that something that you immediately know? Is something that you uh, really like? And does it feel different from doing uh, short form? Well, it's weird to put it, think of my perspective now because I don't like doing improv anymore, and I, I right. stopped doing it a couple years ago. And I don't like—I wouldn't just go see an improv show anymore. But at the time, yeah, it was something that I, I really enjoyed, and I felt like I was like good at and. Uh, was successful at and so yeah I, I think I was I definitely responded to that and I definitely responded to kind of like the more freeing what felt like a little bit of a a more contemporary type of improv where, where a short form could sometimes feel a little bit cheesy so yeah I definitely responded to that why, why did you decide to stop uh, doing improv I just wasn't having any, any fun anymore yeah and it gets kind of a it reaches a point where you sort of like, okay, I know the mechanics of this. I know the math of this. I know how to make something work. I know what's when it's going to fail. I know why. And then to me, that just sort of, it, it started to be, you, you're seeing the matrix a little bit. You know what I mean? And it's, it started to be less fun as a result. It started to feel less spontaneous, a little bit more calculated. Mm, that makes sense. Yeah. I know even like now I've seen like a bunch of improv shows lately right. and it's just like, it's more of just like okay, that's that's a good move, right? Instead of actually like enjoying it, and right? Laughing. Yeah, absolutely. You're kind of just appreciating it as like yeah. okay, you're 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 you're. It's it's kind of like uh, I feel like pe- if you're watching basketball a little too closely, like you're just like appreciating that someone making the right pass versus someone making the spectacular shot, or like mm-hmm. oh, like, oh, he went under the screen, that was right. the right move, versus like oh, he blocked that shot out of bounds, that was awesome to see. You know what I mean? And that's true, I think, for, like, most everything, once you start to really, right. like, look at stuff. It's kind of a sad thing about life. I guess so, yeah. yeah. You don't want too much knowledge or it, or it removes the magic. Yeah. But also, too, it's just for me, I think this is a thing. I, I think I'm I'm a little bit more, and I don't know what your, what your personal perspective is, but I assume as someone who has a podcast about comedy writing <laughs> that you're more of an, you have more of an interest in writing than the performing side of things. Yeah, so that's fair. That, that's always been how I've been. I feel like I'm more interested in creating things on the page and then having the a vision for something and then maybe seeing someone else execute it versus being out there for myself. Like, I'm not like, oh, like, oh I need the stage time. I need to be the, the person that's got the spotlight on them. Like, and this is maybe, a, this sounds r- ridiculous to me in 2007 when I had a one-man show and, you know, that was 30 minutes of me just taking up the stage entirely by myself. But thinking about it now it's just like oh yeah i'm not someone who necessarily craves the performing as much and i don't necessarily get that sort of like satisfaction out of being in front of an audience and getting that sort of reception from the Mm -hmm. crowd i don't need it and as such not needing it it feels like why spend my time doing this yeah that makes sense yeah what was uh what was your one-man show like 
it was basically me doing like six different characters. I had some fun bits that I liked, and I think I had some stuff that maybe mm-hmm. had, wouldn't age as well, or was maybe I, I would consider it to be a little bit corny now. But yeah, it was just me doing six different characters that had different games and mm-hmm. different affectations. I always, because uh, my friend Seth Morris directed the show, and he was. He gave me a note, like a like a note early on that I realized, like, oh, this is kind of guiding me towards what I should be doing in an indirect way, which is that he was like, he would always just talk about how great the writing was and would always just like, well, the writing's really good. Or like, oh, this piece is really well written. And kind of the unspoken thing was that, like, the performing needs a lot of work. And that was a thing that he, he helped me out with. But just knowing that like okay this is the thing i can do best i can like write out this sketch i could write out this character and have that be very funny on the page and then my performance isn't necessarily going to elevate it though right. you know what i mean yeah, it's just yeah, going yeah. to give it at the, at the exact same level that it is on the on the page i'm not necessarily detracting it from it i have a level of competence but it's it's maybe this would be better in someone else's hands yeah that's interesting because i definitely feel the same way as more mm-hmm. of a of a Riley guy, like I, I always say, like the, my least favorite part of improv is like acting. Sure, like I like doing like pitching jokes and whatnot, right. and it's, like actually like having to like be a character or something right. or like manifest that. What do you? I guess your answer was to stop performing. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because also too, it's just like you reach. I, I'm also a type. I'm the most universal type there is in terms of the. the there's just like the the schlubby normal looking white man is just like omnipresent in comedy that's just like there's 10,000 guys like me and so and and most of them are better actors and better performers so what am I doing out there like even if I can book work and I have booked work as an actor occasionally it's like why am I doing this why is this why should I be occupying one of these limited number of slots when there are other people who do it a lot better even for my own stuff Maybe there are occasions where, okay, this thing that I've written, I'm the best person for this. I consider myself the best person for it, and I'll cast myself in it, but that's still pretty rare. Most of the time, like, I have, I I know off the top of my head, 20 better actors who are guys who look like me who could do this job better. Uh, So UCB back then uh, didn't have as much sketch going on, especially at the beginning, right? Uh, Yeah, I think at first it was much more of of an improv theater with you know some and there were sketch shows but they were more bit shows right where it would be just sort of like some sort of theme and it wasn't necessarily a sketch group taking up a full half hour it was you know a bunch of different acts all doing different variations on a theme mm-hmm. but so, but I did get involved in a sketch show pretty early on with my friends Neil Campbell and Paul Rust who were on that Herald team last day of school that I I was uh, put on in 2006 and that was a show, Growing Up is Tough. That was their show that they wrote, and they kind of brought me in there as the guy to play the supporting roles. So it was like a two-man sketch show, and it was their show. Mm-hmm. And But I just filled in with some parts. I filled in with this, this character, Tan Fu, who was a, you know, this mystical creature, <laughs> like, and I was just voicing from off stage. But the, 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 his whole game is he just wanted to hang out with them. Yeah. Like he didn't, you know, he, like he talked about all these, he, he gave them all these ominous proclamations about what their fates were going to be. But it was just basically that he just wanted two guys to, to be his friends. <laughs> yeah. And then there was a, this other character I played in the show called the Grither, who was just this monster that would come if he said your name. If you said his name a bunch of times, and so like I showed up wearing a wolf. I was I was I was a I was a the voice of a stuffed animal on stage, and then I was a guy in a suit wearing a wolf mask. Those were my two characters. Yeah. But it was a super fun show to be a part of, and it was a very funny show. 
And, you know, I, I felt like it was it was cool of them to include me and it was a fun way to contribute some, my voice to some degree. Mm-hmm. It was their show, but then also to, you know, learn a lot in terms of like, oh, this is how a sketch show comes together. This is how Owen Burke directed the show. And like, oh, this is how, you know, you, t- you take something for the page and take it to something that you realize on stage. That was very instructive for me. And it was also just a very fun thing to be a part of. And then uh, you would later be like one of the first uh, mod teams uh, with them. Yes, yeah, so the, which later we became like not a mod team, right? It was like its own separate thing. Yeah, so the mod teams are the house sketch teams at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater. The uh, Man, I never liked the name. Because it was like the Herald teams or the improv teams, the mod uh, teams or the sketch teams, and it's mm-hmm. a reference to Harold and Maud, that right. 1970s movie. And I just thought it was kind of like, all right. <laughs> well, isn't Harold's Her- like random, isn't it? Like Harold's like random, yeah. It's yeah. All, that's also stupid. Yeah. I mean, let's be honest, Harold is stupid. I remember I, I read that people thought it was like Harold, like H E R A L D. Yeah, that would make more it's sense. Making more sense, but yeah. It's yeah, they, so the Harold H, the etymology of that apparently was just like someone, someone one of Del Close's. Acolytes was like, we should just call this form Herald, right, and they're yeah. like, okay, there now it's called the Herald. This is fun. <laughs> this is spontaneous creation of things in the seventies when everyone's doing coke. And so they had they called it the Herald, and then that existed for like twenty years, mm-hmm. thirty years, and then at UCB decided to call this sketch teams that accompany them the mod teams. Also very stupid, <laughs> but yeah, my so I, I heard a rumor. That Neil Campbell wanted to call it uh, Harold and Kumar, the Kumar teams. That's funny. He, he denied it, though. I asked him on this podcast, and he denied right, it. Right, yeah. He actually seemed a little upset when I asked him. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I think he was probably, that was probably the right move to not do that. <laughs> but oh, yeah. I believe him. I have no reason to doubt him. So, <laughs> so yeah, the, the, they swarmed mod teams in, what was it, 2008, something like that, which were the house sketch teams, which I already said. And where was I going with this? Oh, yeah. And so, like, you was basically submit a, a packet of sketches. I was already pretty entrenched in the theater as someone who was on a, a house team that had been performing for several years. So I felt very confident that I was going to get in anyway. But I, you know, submitted the packet. And, um, and yeah, it, I was placed it, on a team with, with people I largely knew from, from doing this UCB show called Sketch Cram, which is a show where you'd write an entire sketch show in one day. And then also this other, uh, also just, you know, via making connections from doing Harold Night for several years. And, uh... uh what was I going to say? Uh, the... What was I going to say? I had it. Hmm. We were talking about sketches. Yeah. We were talking about the origin of the term Harold team. Uh... We were talking about Neil oh, Campbell. So, at the time, yes. there wasn't many uh, sketch classes. Right. I mean, I'd taken the sketch... I'd taken sketch classes at UCB. I'd taken... With Donna Fine Glass, who's great and awesome, I'd taken a Sketch 101 with her, and then I'd taken a special sketch class with Matt Besser. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there weren't a lot being offered there. What was that class with uh, Besser like? I mean, it's great. He's very smart and very just grumpy, but he will just he will say exactly what he thinks about something. He will give sort of the unvarnished truth, and to a lot of people, it's like jarring and it's like like oh fuck. But I think it's fine. It's helpful to have that sort of. If someone has that sort of shorthand and will just tell you something's not working, a lot of times that's better than just endless encouragement. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So I really appreciated that. And he gave some very, very specific notes that I still just like keep in mind, which is here are the two very specific things I learned from Matt Besser's class that I find still find helpful. One, just make the game of the sketch, the premise of the sketch, the title of the sketch. So like, you know, 
this guy is scared of pants. Like, just making that the title of the sketch. Like, okay, I get exactly what this is going in. I know what I'm supposed to be laughing at. I know what the premise of this is. And if this is handed to me in a packet to read, and I'm reading this to myself, I know what I'm supposed to be focusing on. And if this is at a table read, and I'm an actor, and I'm going to be performing one of these parts, I know what the unusual thing is going to be. I know what I'm supposed to center the comedy on. So, like, and by the way, this guy is afraid of pants. Free idea. Anyone wants it, <laughs> write it up. Um, but so... The, so you so that's very very helpful and I found that that super you know it's a good good contemporary uh, point of reference for that you see like sketches that put get put up on Facebook and they'll have like those black bars yeah. the top and bottom and it'll be like you know like like when the gas station is out of cigarettes <laughs> and it's just like oh, okay that's telling me what the premise of this bit is going to be um, again another free idea for anyone out there but so. So, yeah, I think that's super useful. The other thing was just get to what the funny thing is on the first page. In fact, as much as possible in the, on the first half of the first page. Like, cut all that sort of chuff-offs, cut all that sort of back-and-forth, just flavor dialogue establishing the world, and just get right into it. And that I find to be super helpful as well for sketch writing. And, and you uh, taught sketch at UCB. Yeah, I taught that for a, for a couple of years. I stopped in 2011. Um, but, yeah, 2000. I guess 2009, 2010, 2011, maybe? 2010, 2011, mostly, I guess. I'm trying to remember. And, and was that before... Because uh, I know they have like a now like a really set curriculum. Was that before that? Uh, the curriculum was still pretty defined. Yeah. It's gotten a lot more, I think, even, even in the time I was there. And so, you know, I stopped teaching them maybe six years ago. Even in the time I was there, it was it developed quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joe Wangert, who was the school director, I don't remember what his exact title was, but he came in there while I was working, moved out from New York, and he did a, a very a very good job just crafting a curriculum that was a lot more specific and had a lot more guidance for what the instructors should be doing. But that was, yeah. But I imagine these days it's it's even more well honed in terms mm-hmm. of what they're telling people to focus in on. Uh, when you were teaching, was there any like specific things that you would uh, try to like have in your class? Mm, I think my main thing is I just tried to convey to people to try to express what they found was funny. I don't know how much I, I succeeded or failed with this. It's hard. It's hard for me to evaluate my own abilities as, as an instructor. But I try to communicate what they fi- find to be funny. Like I feel like that's your best chance for success for writing anything is like not write what I think people will find funny, but what I find funny was going to make me laugh. Because there will always be people who respond to that. And it's going to feel more real. And and you're going to be excited about it, so you're going to do a better job. And the other thing was just trying to have things be focused and specific. And have in mind the premise of what you're doing. Like, you should be able to say what the premise of the sketch is in a sentence. And if you can't do that, you've probably got too many things going on. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, just trying to keep things specific. But I, I feel like the question I would ask the most... And this kind of ties in with both points when I was teaching was, so what about this did you find funny to you? And that will sometimes that would sometimes help people zero in on like, okay, I had this interaction with this with my boss where he didn't understand, you know, he didn't understand how what like how sarcasm worked. And so he was just it was like, okay, so you have the idea of an authority figure who doesn't understand sarcasm. We can kind of try to make use that as our you know, as, as our guidepost, that's what what the sketch is going to be anchored in. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Uh, and one of your one of your first jobs was uh, this show will get you high, right? Well, I worked on this. Yeah, I, as a comedy writer, 
So I was I worked in video games for some time. I oh, didn't yeah. stop working in video games until 2009, and then I started. And that that's when I was like teaching some classes to kind of try to bridge the gap a little bit and just living off my savings for a bit. And then yeah, in 2010 I started to book some work as a comedy writer. So yeah, I was I worked on Matt Besser's pilot. This show will get you high which was a sketch pilot, and he was very very nice of him to hire me as a, as a young writer without any credits at that point. And then I also worked at, at, around the same time I'd submitted a packet and got hired as an Onion contributor. So I was contributing mm-hmm. headlines and premises for videos for the Onion News Network, which is their video channel. Yeah. What, what was that, uh, that show looking high that writer's room like? It was good. I mean, it was there were some very funny people in it, and... Craig Rowan, Chris Kelly, who's gone on to, to a lot of success. Both of those guys have gone on to a lot of success. Uh, I was there with the Tremendosaur guys the week I was there. Um, and let's see, who else was it? Tim Sicardo was in there. A lot of good people. Uh, and so, yeah, like, a lot, like a, lot, a lot of talented writers worked on that show. I mean, it was pretty brief. I wasn't there for very long. Um, it wasn't a WGA show, so they didn't have, like, the... If you, if you work on a WGA show, it has to be a yeah, 13-week contract. And for a non-union show, they can hire you for shorter spurts. So that was part of the this situation where you didn't have... It wasn't as long of a run. But it was fun just to write sketches in that room and... The thing is, like, Besser generated such a gigantic volume of sketches, which is, I thought, you know, it was useful, and is under, I understand why I was doing that, and I think that's such a big part of comedy writing for in the variety sketch space, which is what most of my professional experience is just taking so many shots that you'll have some stuff that works and other stuff that just doesn't work, but you have so many options in there that you're able to pick the, the best of the best, the best of the bunch, and, and you can just discard all the stuff that doesn't work. So, yeah, there was such a gigantic volume of material being generated in that room. Like, everyone was writing a half dozen sketches a day. Oh, wow. And so I, that, that's probably overstating it, but it, it felt like that. It, like, it felt like the, the number of pages that you were put, outputting was just immense. And then ultimately, this was for a pilot that probably had eight scripted bits. Right. So, you know, it was just like so much stuff was just getting thrown away. But some of those pieces I still retained, and, and I did something with later. So, yeah, it was very helpful. Uh, was that, like, a crazy transition as, like, your first, like, writer's room? No, it was actually fine because it was UCB people, so these were people right. that I knew. Mm-hmm. And it was someone that I had as a teacher, now as a boss. So it was yeah. just, like, a little bit of, like, oh, okay, this actually, in terms of having my hand held for some sort of professional experience, this actually is a pretty good first job, first staff job. And uh, you mentioned you worked at the Onion yes. uh, News Network. What was that um, contribution process like? Well, so yeah, to clarify, I never worked in the Onion offices. I was right, always right. always out here in LA, and I was always contributing remotely. And honestly, it was just basically it was via email. I did that for about three years, but it would be. And I also worked on the IFC show uh, the, uh, called the Onion News Network. I worked on that for two seasons in the same sort of capacity. But yeah, you basically have like, hey, here's some topics, and then also just some stuff that's just generally about what's happening in the news and we're looking for it was stuff that was slightly more evergreen because you, we were we were writing video pitches and so those would be things that would take some more time to produce so they it wouldn't be turned around immediately but it would be like you know hey here's here sarah palin's in the news i'm dating myself um but yeah <laughs> you know sarah palin's in the news nancy pelosi's in the news uh whatever 
Rom- Mitt Romney said this, and you'd have some some various topics, and then you'd just basically write a a headline, an Onion-style headline, something that they would basically use verbatim if they were going to pick up your idea, and then a few sentences of description of what the piece might be. Or sometimes if the headline was self-explanatory, you could just leave it as the headline. Mm-hmm. And that was that was very... I mean, that's a thing that I remember back then would take me a lot of thinking to try to come up with, like, if we're, we were asked for 20 headlines one week. And that would take me a lot of work to come up with them. But just having to generate that volume of material so consistently and so regularly for very little money, like the, the, the money was almost <laughs> insultingly low. But having to do that got me to the point where I think one of my strengths now is I can give a bunch of options i can generate a bunch of stuff very quickly and you know like if you need one good joke i can give you 20 okay jokes but within there there will be maybe three that'll work you know what i mean yeah and you you think that was because of that doing that i think that was part of it i think i think you know just also it's just general accumulation of experience but i think that very specifically the idea of like okay i have to come up with all these different variations on the same sort of topics and I just have to do this so regularly and so consistently. And this is something that I have to make work only on the page. I'm, not, I'm never going to see these people face-to-face who I'm working with. Right. So I need to make this work only on the page. And so, yeah, I think that worked that muscle. Uh, did you find it difficult to write in, like, the Onion voice, even do, like, the headlines? No, because I've been a fan for so long and they have such a specific mm-hmm. sort of, you know, slant to them that, it, that I think it's pretty easy to adopt. Oh, it was for me anyway. Do you uh, do you like writing uh, satire? Um, kind of. I don't know. It gets exhausting too. Yeah. Topical stuff. Eventually, it's just I, I've done so much of it, and it, it gets just like uh, at some point, you know. Th- this is the. This isn't someone I, I I'm friends with, but I have a friend of a friend who is a former Daily Show writer, and quit and is trying not to go back to that space. And I think you articulated it very well, which is just like, I can't write anything else that begins with, with all due respect, Mr. President. You know what I mean? (laughs) It's It's just like, just like that voice is just sort of like, okay, I get, I mean, yeah, we got to have a take on this crazy thing, but uh, it's like the, uh, the verified uh, Twitter users who tweet at Trump. Right. I don't know how people keep that gimmick up. Yeah. It's just so exhausting. It's just, just, everyone's just sort of. Like slightly heightened Keith Olbermann impression, just like calm <laughs> yeah. down, or like uh, Jeff Jeff Daniels from the newsroom, right? Yeah. Oh boy. Um, yeah, that's a, a, like political satire uh, today is pro- it's pretty tough. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and it's it's, but even even before this current era, I think it's just sort of you re- there's there's topical stuff. It's always going to alienate a large part of your audience because you can't have any sort of take without having a perspective. And anytime you take a perspective, you're going to alienate some people, which is fine. But it's also like, to what end? You know, like, mm-hmm. what, what is this? What effect is this having? I don't know how much of an effect mockery has on anything. And also, too, sometimes I feel like you're undercutting the seriousness of something by poking fun of it. But, but those are almost side things. For me, it's just sort of, it's sort of, it's just so unfun. Right. To be like, okay, I got to do this take on Newt Gingrich. You're just like, oh, I don't want to <laughs> fucking think about this guy yeah. and try to craft a comedic take. And then you do, and it always feels a little preachy, even if you're trying to be as, as unpreachy as possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just having to do, I mean, like, I, for so long, my jobs were just all doing topical stuff. Because after I'd worked on 
that the the Onion I worked on the show will get you high in 2011. I worked on the show for Fuel TV called The Daily Habit, which was you know great experience and everyone was was very nice there. I didn't really like the show and it was all like there had to be topical material all the time. And then at, from there I went to Funny or Die and I worked at Funny or Die off and on for three or four years and that was just a constant deluge of topical stuff. Mm-hmm. And particularly there they were like, oh Nick knows politics, we'll have Nick do the political stuff. And I'm like, I'm interested in politics, but I don't want to be the guy who's always fucking writing political stuff but you get they put you into that like like okay this is what your specialty is this is what in the expendables of this room this is what your your task is going to be and so I, I ended up I had to do an overwhelming volume of that and it just gets tiring mm-hmm. so yeah you want to do stuff that because again you know going back to my original influences and things that made me want to do comedy in the first place and things that made me excited about comedy when I was much less jaded than I am now it wasn't topical stuff. It wasn't, oh, I love watching the cold open on Saturday Night Live. It was weird shit like Conan and, and weird for its time, you know, The Simpsons in its in its prime seasons. Mm-hmm. That, so that's like, that's what made me want to get into it. Things that just sort of generally were absurd and generally were funny for the sake of being funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you get political on Twitter sometimes. Yeah. Uh, and I, know, I think you're, you're a fan of like the Chapo guys, right? Yeah, I think that, I love that podcast, and I'm I'm, I'm a gray wolf. I'm a, I'm a Patreon subscriber. Uh, me, me too. Yeah. Um, I don't know those, those guys. They're they're really funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think I, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with this. It's just like uh, wh- like their political humor is like intentionally not trying to not preachy. Yeah, I, I mean, say. well, sometimes I guess, sometimes. I guess yeah, so, I don't right? know. I mean, because I feel like those guys all have very strong point of views, right. and I think they're not shy about sharing them. So I, I don't know about that exactly, but I think those guys are also all genuinely funny. And I think right. to me, to to take a step back, maybe, and to talk about Twitter in in, in general, for me, that's been very illuminating to be on Twitter for several years now. God, I, I fucking hate that site, but it's it, <laughs> but it is. But I also love it, and I can't escape it. But there's so many people on Twitter who are just so funny and just like, like, oh, you're just a naturally funny person. You work at a lab in Pennsylvania, but you are as funny as a professional stand-up who I work with in a writer's room. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. so, like, they're just the idea that, like, oh, there's so many funny people out there. There are funny guys in the offices who are, aren't just, like, the funny guy in the office. They're actually a genuinely funny person. And if you give them a platform like something like Twitter or something like a, a roll-your-own podcast – then you can see them like, oh, they have genuine comedic talent and they're they're really, really good at this. And this is like a thing they should be doing. So that to me has been kind of both encouraging and discouraging from the standpoint of like, like, oh, it's it's encouraging how many funny people out there are there there are out there. And it's it's good that we exist in a time where these voices have an opportunity to be known. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, that's awesome. But it's also kind of like, oh, the, the discouragement comes from, oh, okay, so there's really nothing special about being the person who goes to New York or L.A. and, and does open mics yeah. and takes improv classes and gets all this stage time and gets all this experience because at the end of the day, it's kind of like a binary, you're funny or you're not, and there are going to be people funnier than you who just don't necessarily have any experience. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's true. Because I know like, people, like, I think there was like a Seth Meyers writer got hired who was like a dad in like the mid- Midwest. Right. And he got hired off on Twitter with no like credits or anything. And that's great. That's mm-hmm. so awesome. But uh, but yeah, you're right. It does make it feel less like you're doing something out here. Right. But I mean, like, I think that's just maybe a, a thing to things are constantly shifting. Mm-hmm. And 
it's just a thing to be aware of. You know, when I started out at doing stuff at UCB, I think like it was like, oh, okay, you what you do is you make a you write your own sketch show and then you put up your sketch show and that's how you get representation and that's how you start getting meetings and then you maybe have your pilot. Whereas now, then then it was a time where it was like, okay, maybe you don't even worry about putting up your own sketch show. Maybe it's more like I'm going to make some sketches and put them on YouTube and then I'm going to have my, my YouTube sketch group and they'll get some buzz and some some borderline virality and then that will lead this through this process where I'm getting representation at meetings. And now I don't even know what it is. I'm not sure what the starting point is. Is it, you know, is it you're just funny on Twitter? I don't know. I feel like even that is now probably going out the window. There's probably right. some other platform that I'm not really super aware of that people are are, are using to develop, you know, the, the next generation of talents. I don't know. I don't know. How, it's, it's, it's interesting that it's constantly shifting. I think it's maybe not a thing to get upset by, but a thing to just sort of acknowledge and be aware of. Yeah, it feels like maybe it's like a mix of everything right now, at least. Like, it's a mix of Twitter, a mix sure. of viral videos, and then, like, doing stuff at, like, places like UCB. Yeah, I don't... Yeah, again, I mean, you could be right. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you mentioned you uh, worked at Funny or Die. How did mm-hmm. you get uh, that, that job? So, I was... I It was very fortuitous. as my job at The Daily Habit. This Fuel TV show I worked at in 2011 was ending. My good friend, Dave Ferguson, from the sketch group The Birthday Boys... But they needed someone to work at Funny or Die on some freelance stuff, and he had recommended me. I went over there and I started working there, actually originally on political stuff. And I was I brought in there to do political stuff and also to do branded content, which were two things that I ended up saddled with during the entirety of my time there at Funny or Die, <laughs> uh, for, mostly for worse. But so I was there... <laughs> And then, so I was there, and, and it was kind of a, a thing, you know, again, talking about my, my demeaning experience at Activision as a contractor, it was the same sort of thing at Funny or Die, is that I was a full-time employee there, but I was a freelancer. I wasn't on staff for probably six months to a year of the time I was there. I was just there as a freelancer, and, you know, I was on, a, on an, end, an unending series of one-week contracts, basically. they bring me on for one week, and then they'd be like, hey, we're going to bring you on for another week. And we bring, I just remember, like, man, what a, what an annoying process that, was, process that was to be unsure if I was going to have a job the next week, to go and take my time card to be shot, signed every week because I wasn't, like, a, on staff. I had to, get you know, take care of I had to do this whole process that, that the people who were there on staff didn't have to do. And meanwhile, I'm doing the exact same job as them. So I was I was that for a while. Uh, that's a practice I think Funnier Dice still does, which isn't great. But I, I was there for a while doing that. And then uh, eventually I got brought, I, I left to work on another show, the show Newsreaders on Adult Swim, which was a great experience. And I worked there for uh, like a month and change. And then I got brought back to Funny or Die. They hired me on staff. And then I was there off and on for the next few years, um, again, taking breaks to work on other Adult Swim shows, mm-hmm. most notably at uh, NTSF SDSUV, which is uh, which Paul Shear's show, which was like a CSI parody that's that's not the best description of it, but that's kind of what it, what it began as. But I think it was a much more um, just general action action mm-hmm. sort of spook in that that Adult Swim mindset, and that that was very very fun to work on. Uh, one of uh, a video that comes up often on yeah. the show when I talk to people from Funnier Die is the Gungam style. Oh yeah, so I made that in 2012. It's it's crazy how long ago that was. Now it'll be it'll be five years, and I think in October or November since I made that video, and it's still one of the things that and my podcast Doughboys are the things yeah. that people always want to talk to me about. But uh, yeah, so I was amazed that they let me make that. Yeah, and it's crazy that they did. It, I mean, it's you know, the, the one of the good things I got out of Funny or Die was that they there were times when you could get so, you could get a budget and get some 
creative autonomy to just sort of make your weird idea. Uh, that ha- started happening less and less, but during the front end of the time I was there, you could definitely make that happen and you could make some, some weird, just more arty things. And so, yeah, that was a one where it was the height of the Gangnam style trend. And so everyone was making all these Gangnam style parodies. And so mine was Gungan style. But so like for the first minute of the sketch, it's just like the most committed, like I to to me writing the lyrics like as precisely as possible. And we've got dancers dressed up as Jar Jar Binks and Mara Jade and Princess Leia and they're doing the Gangnam style dances to uh, Gungan style which is the the song about the Gungans from the Star Wars prequels and so it's just a very very committed song parody for like the first minute and then it stops and then it's me and my friend Ryan Perez who's also working at Funny or Die sitting at the edit bay and we're wa- I'm showing this to him and then he, he's just like basically just totally dissects everything that's bad about it and everything that I've done wrong in my career that's led me to this point. And then it sends me on this sort of existential uh, descent where I end up killing myself. And like, so like it's like this, this hyper dark video, but it, what it did sort of really articulate how I felt about my output and how I still feel about my output at Funny or Die, which is that so much I was like, feel like I was making so much disposable topical crap that I was kind of embarrassed by, but I felt like I had to make it to keep being employed mm-hmm. there. And so I was, I was really cool that they let me make that. And I think it was just like, I'm, I am uh, of the few things that I've, e- I've done that I've ever, uh, it's one of the few things I've ever done that I'm actually like proud of. And I'm actually like, Oh, I think I did a good job with that. I think I did a good job writing and directing and editing that. Um, and, and yeah, people still want to talk to me about it for whatever reason. They, uh, I take a, I took a sketch class at the pack yeah. with uh, Sam Brown and he shows that uh, sketch. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That's great. It's, uh, yeah, it's a really uh, cynical look, but I guess, you know, it makes sense, like, uh, from your experiences, like, what, uh, yeah. them. I mean, like, also, too, I, I think I do have kind of a cynical worldview. Like, I think that is, that is sort of, based on my experiences, I do feel a lot of despair about the situation that humanity is in but also to the situation that i personally am in you know despite being sort of like oh i kind of get to live my dream but it, I, i've kind of get to live my dream with like that little twilight zone twist you know what i mean we're gonna work in the video game industry i was working jobs that i didn't really like working on games that i didn't really want to i would never want to play and so you know i worked on the fantastic four video game and i worked on the shrek video game and i worked on pirates of the caribbean the legend of jack sparrow which was the game that bridged the story between the first two Pirates movies. It's like, those were never (laughs) things that I wanted to play when I was a kid and, you know, thought Castlevania and Mario were cool. So, and the same sort of thing when I like, oh, I get to be a comedy writer. Hey, this is awesome. And then I look at most of my credits and I'm like, well, most of what I worked on is like stuff. These are things I would never watch. This is not... Really? Yeah, it's just like, these are jobs that I took to get paid, but I feel like most of my output is like, okay, well... This is not what my sensibility is, and this is not what my, you know, this is not really what I wanted, what I want to be making if I was in creative control of something. Interesting. Yeah. I think most people would say you've had a really uh, interesting, great career mm. doing that test stuff. So, what, what would you say your sensibility is? It's mm, a good question. I mean, I think I would just like to make something that is just. If I was going to if I was going to, to make something and have full control over it, I think I would make something that's probably a little bit uh, weirder and a little bit more tonal and a little bit more cinematic 
than a lot of the stuff I've worked on. I mean, like, yeah. I think a lot of the credits, and I'm not trying to shit on everything I've worked on. I've, I've worked on some stuff I'm, I'm proud of, and I've worked on some stuff that I think is good. And even the stuff that I feel like is not for me, I feel like I've worked on, on good versions of that. But... Not, so not to offend all my prior employers, but <laughs> no, I, I, I do honestly like I like a lot of stuff that I've worked on, but even the stuff that I realize is maybe not for me. But I, I just I, I feel like I would like to do something that is just, you know, like that is not trying to uh, not trying to. What's the word I'm looking for? I, w- I was going to say trying to impress somebody, but that's not true. You're always trying to impress somebody. Um, but something that's just like like not trying so hard to be like, oh, this is relevant or this is about what's going on now. You know what I mean? Right. Something, something that more is just sort of like, oh, this exists because it's weird. And this exists because it's just sort of like a unique thing that doesn't isn't necessarily mired, isn't necessarily married rather to this specific you know, time and place. And this, and I, I guess what I'm just saying in, in a very sort of convoluted way, I'm saying like, I'd like to do stuff that isn't as topical and isn't as much about the news and the media. Right. Right. That yeah. makes sense. Cause you had a lot of uh, jobs like that. Yeah, pretty much. I feel like that's <laughs> most of my professional output has been that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you mentioned you worked on uh, some Adult Swim shows. Yes. Uh, what's like a, the packet like for like a 15 minute show like that? Is it just sketches? I never got, I never got hired for those off of a packet. Okay. Uh, I would imagine for those shows it would be a you're more likely to just see like a pilot submission you know what I mean like if mm-hmm. you're working for it because it was actually a challenge to make it a show like NTSF SDSUV because you're telling within 11 minutes you're telling a, a three act story and that had, you have to be so economical and these scenes have to be sometimes three lines long and but they still have to you know communicate a story beat and then have a joke in them so it's so I, I think the skill that's that they'd more be looking for there uh, if they were hiring off of a submission would be just a good like half hour sample. Mm-hmm. So I think you're more likely to have that be what would get you hired than a, than a sketch packet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you didn't do a packet, how did you get hired? Uh, well, okay. So those, so at the, the job on newsreaders, I actually can't remember, boy, that, that must've been a good, like a guy, someone recommended me and I'm, I'm forgetting who it was, but that basically it was a situation where, I think I'd maybe done a punch-up room for them or something, but basically the, the it was the show, Rob Corddry's show, and at the same time, Rob Corddry had been hired to act in a movie, so he couldn't be there on set, so they needed someone to kind of do, go in there and do on-set punch-up. How did I get hired for that? Why can't I remember? I feel like I'm forgetting someone who did me a favor by, by saying, like, hey, Weiger would be good for this. Fuck, I apologize to that person who would probably not be listening to this, but in any event, so, like... I, uh, I, yeah, so I, I, that was, that was via a personal recommendation and I went in there and I interviewed for that and they liked me and they hired me and I, and I was there for a bit. And then the NTSF SUV had been, I'd been doing a number of punch up rooms for this company, Abominable, uh, who I still work with. And I just go, you know, the punch up rooms, a lot of times you'll just go in there and you're just sitting with a group of people and you're reading through scripts, or if it's in the pre-production process, you're talking through possible ideas and you're just pitching jokes out and you're just pitching story ideas. And so I'd done that a few times and I think they, they, they thought I was good at it and they liked me. And so they had a situation on NTSF SDSUV where they were looking at a couple of people to bring in as writers new to the show. 
And I'd also written something for them, too. What the fuck was... I'm forgetting all this. Sorry, Alan, I should have done more prep. You did way more prep than me. <laughs> I'm a bad guest. So, but they brought on me and, and my friend Alex Fernie to work as writers on that show and then also work as, as co-EPs, as co-executive producers. And so we worked on... After having worked on a couple of things for season two... Um, as just as writers, we brought we worked on all of season three to kind of like helping to oversee that. Well, what's like uh, your role change as like an executive producer? Um, you know, it's a lot more. You just it goes from being like, okay, I'm going to write what this costume is in a stage direction to you know that that's maybe the writer level, and then at the the co EP or EP level, you've got a wardrobe, you know, someone in the wardrobe department who's bringing you some wardrobe options to look at physically, and you're deciding, okay, we'll go with that one. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? It's a lot more. The creative decisions are less about just like the the broad template of what's going to happen, and more about making those granular, like individual, like okay, this is what we need to do creatively here. We need to shoot at this bar location. This is what's going to be the best way to render this thing that's on the page on film. Mm. Uh, so after the... And, and casting as well, like things like right. that. Like, you're like okay, we've got these supporting roles. Who would be a good person to play that? There's all sorts mm-hmm. of... All those creative decisions um, from the pre-production process and then the production process where you're shooting there, you have a little bit more authority than you would as a, as a writer who you sometimes, depending on the situation, you might just be more of a fly on the wall. So yeah, it, you just have a lot more input, a lot more questions that you are the person who's going to answer. Did you? And you know, I was not the sole authority in that show. Right. I was one of there. There were people above me. The, the Paul Shear is executive producer. John Stern is executive producer. Uh, Curtis Gwynn. These, these were people who who had more authority than me. And and you know, but there, you do end up in a situation where you are helping to influence or contributing to those discussions. And and did you uh, enjoy having the extra responsibility? I like that a lot. I loved NTSF. That was that was one of the the funnest uh, shows I've worked on. That was just a a really. I, I think that that show was very much very close to. In terms of what I think the I, I what I think is the tone of fine of things I find funny and like the kind of thing that I I'd, I would like to make is just like this this absurd sort of satire and you had a lot of fun talking just with how over the top all the action specifics mm-hmm. were so yeah I, I actually liked it in that capacity but I also like not having to be the person that was like the head honcho because that's a whole another level of pressure that I just right. was like. I don't actually have to work. I, 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 this is still going to be an immense source of stress for me, which it was at the time, but it's not like overbearing. And, and after that show, you worked on Comedy Bang Bang. Yeah, so I work. I, I can't remember if I. I just jiggled my headphones here. I think one of my. Oh. Yeah, sorry. Is that- sorry, buddy. Yeah, that's better. Okay. Thank you. Um, we'll peek behind the curtain. <laughs> All right, so yeah, so I, I, can't, I can't remember the exact chronology. But I was working at that show. I think it went back to Funny or Die for a bit. And then for, I left from there to work on Comedy Bang Bang Season 3. And then I left that show to go back to Funny or Die. So it was kind of ping-ponging back and forth between Funny or Die. Who was, it was nice that they were happy to have me any time that I was not working on a TV show. But yeah, I was kind of doing that for a while before I reached a point where I was just booking TV work steadily enough where I wasn't working at Funny or Die to bridge those gaps anymore. And uh, did, you need a, uh, <laughs> did you need a packet for uh, Comedy Bang Bang? Let's see. Comedy Bang Bang. I think I did. I yeah, I can't remember the process, but I think if it was, it was just a it was just a, a general like three to five sketch packet. Mm-hmm. But also, I think this this was another situation. I got a lot of jobs, and you know what? I, I don't know if this is a place where you offer advice to people or or if that's that's part of the the show. But if I was going to offer any advice to anyone. I got a lot of jobs because there was like, hey, this person can't do it anymore. We need somebody. Can you do it on short notice? And 
I would always say yes to those opportunities because not have an ego about it, not have like, like, well, fuck, I don't want to be their second choice because that can lead to more opportunities. And eventually you will be someone's first choice if you go in there and you prove yourself. So, yeah, I mean, that was a situation where I think they I honestly think part of it was that they had a writer who wasn't available for their writing cycle. And so they had a slot open up and I knew the head writer, Neil Campbell, from from doing sketch and improv for many years. And uh, I knew Scott Ackerman peripherally from having done his podcast and, and knew some of the other writers in that room, uh, some of the birthday boys. So I think they were just sort of like, oh, yeah, Weiger would be great for this. And they, they brought me in. And, and I think that was my process for starting for season three. And that turned into an opportunity. I was able to do that for, for subsequent seasons as well. And and that was uh, was that the year where it was like the forty episodes? No, that was season four. Season three, I think, was still okay. Ten or twenty? I think it was twenty. Actually, it was still a lot. Yeah. So what, what was that? Uh, what was that process like of generating all this that material? I mean, there's a lot of just discussion of what the episodes would be, and a lot of times those would come in. Like Scott would have ideas coming in of like, uh, you know, I want to do an episode where. The set is turned upside down. He would have something as general as that. Or sometimes he'd have a very specific, like, outline of, like, I want to do a parody of this specific 1950s beach comedy. You know what I mean? Like, he'd have some specific idea. Those would largely come from him, but sometimes come from the writers as well. And you would spend a lot of time, I feel like, in the early side of, of pitching, just pitching ideas for what episodes could be. Because the way those were structured, it was all these, they, they were all using the talk show format, but they'd have different A stories sort of carrying throughout them. So we pitch on what those A stories would be. And then also part of it, and you know what, the process may have been flipped in season three. We may have started with sketches, but part of it is also like oh. just pitching your your video sketches, which would be things that would be pre-taped, and those would be things that would be rolled in during the show, and there's usually one or two of those per episode. Um, and those would be more of a produced piece that was more of sort of a fourth-wall sketch that would be kind of a standalone thing. Starting with sketches seems uh, more difficult than... Well, I mean, the thing is, they were so disconnected from... I, I, I could be misremembering the process. This, mm-hmm. was, this was years ago at this point. But I, they're so disconnected from what the A story is that mm-hmm. it's just kind of like you just think of them as in isolation. So it's like, okay, we have this idea for this parody of the, a boxing movie. You know I mean? Like, you don't have to think of that, how it's connecting to what the story is of, of the episode where, you know, Scott's sister comes to set... You, you, don't have, you don't have to worry about that at all because it's just such a complete tangent when they cut to it. Uh, and, and you wrote uh, the man man cave sketch. Oh yeah, that was the I wrote the teardown, and that was one where the premise of it was that what I originally found funny about the idea was that like okay, this is a renovation show because I love watching HGTV show. This is another thing. If I was going to get dispense some some unsolicited advice, and maybe solicited, if you're listening to this, maybe you're, maybe you want to hear uh, what someone has to, to suggest. But if someone someone out there is a is a young writer, I would say you're always going to have more success parodying something that you're a fan of rather than something that you think is stupid. So like that's why there are so many fucking Star Wars parodies. You know what I mean? It's just like because comedy writers tend to be Star Wars nerds. That's more likely to be the case. So I would just say pick something that you're a fan of. Instead of something you, that you want to, you want to like rip to shreds. So anyway, I like to watch HGTV shows with my wife, and uh, so I, my original idea there was tear down, and it was just a renovation show where they just tear down your house, and then that's they they just leave. So like that was what I originally found funny about it. It's like okay, they're gonna go and renovate this guy's home, and they're gonna just tear down, tear it down, and then get the fuck out of there. Um, and then in writing it, so I had pitched that idea and then got the green light to write it up, and in writing it, I sort of found. 
you know, one thing was the production challenge of like tearing down, having an entire house torn down uh, is just not something that you can necessarily realize on well, really on most TV budgets, right? That's just like a, like you can, you can find ways to fake it and you can do it with CG, but like just the idea of, of actually replicating that HGTV feel with that sort of with sledgehammers knocking down drywall, it's just difficult to do. So uh, either someone gave me the note or I decided on my own to sort of focus it in on one specific room, which makes it a little bit more easy to produce. And then from that point, when I was just writing it, I settled on it being a man cave and it just made me laugh, the idea of, of this man cave is more like a man's grave. Right. And then so as I was writing it, I just sort of, like, I put that in there once, and I was like, ah, it'd be funny if Scott says it again. And I had him saying it three times, and I was like, yeah, fuck it, I'll have him say it 20 times. <laughs> and I just wrote it in the script as many times as possible. And there's still the button at the end where the house is torn, that where they tear down, they, basically they have this man cave, which is which is this really uh, dank and depressing and weird place where uh, Brian Stack ended up playing the the, the dad, which was awesome. Um, where, where he has like this this you know his private home for himself. And when Scott checked it out, he's like, "Wow, this man cave looks more like a man's grave." And then I just had him say that as many times as possible. And then it still has the button at the end where they just tore out his man cave and didn't replace anything, and they right. throw him out of his house. <laughs> but that was almost like it was more just like the button, the sketch. What 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 originally was the central premise of it mm-hmm. kind of got thrown away as just like this little added joke at the end. And really, I think the main joke that people remember is just Scott saying, "This man cave is more like a man's grave" as many times as you can within a four minute sketch. Right, and, and that seems. Uh... <clears throat> From, from listening to Doughboys, that seems like a very uh, much a, a very wagger bit. Ha! Huh, I guess you yeah, just taking something that's kind of funny and hammering it into the ground until. Oh, what? I, would, I, would, I wouldn't describe it like that. I think it's a it's a fun uh, a fun play on language. Oh sure, yeah. I mean yeah. that's that's not like I mean it's like a little torture. It's not it's not like the cleanest sort of thing, you know. Mm-hmm. But um, I think actually I had I originally had an idea for someone just saying. I think the reason why I landed on Man Cave is more like a man's grave. I originally had the idea of someone saying "rave to the grave," like rave like like, the like these kid like these like someone who's worried <laughs> about kids. Like these kids are going to rave to the grave, oh, and I really like the idea of of grave as as the rhyme. So I think that I kind of worked backwards to land on that. Oh, that's funny. Rave to the ga- rave yeah. to the grave is also very good. Yeah, I, <laughs> I maybe should have made the rave to the grave sketch. I don't know. Man Cave that works really well. <laughs> I, I, I think that I think you made the right choice. Okay, thank you for saying that, Alan. <laughs> uh, and so, uh, after Bang Bang, you worked at, at Midnight. Yes. Uh, how did you get hired for that? So I worked at Funny or Die. It's so funny how many of my I'm realizing as I'm going through this chronology, like so many of my jobs is just like, uh, like oh shit, we need somebody get Weiger, you know, because yeah. I kind of have a reputation for a, I can kind of do do whatever is needed on short notice for whatever reason that that sort of people have, have sort of figured think that made that decision that that's that's what I can do. So. I were I was working at Funny or Die. I'd actually had a little bit of a hand, not very very little, but a little bit of a hand in helping the the serious business guys who created the concept of At Midnight, originally called Tweeter Dome, but who'd created that show internally at Funny or Die in development with Joe Farrell, the the executive over there, and Mike Farah. Uh, I had given just like a small amount of input on what that show could be and helped write their test shows a little bit. So they, they, so they knew me from that. And at midnight had a situation where one writer left under not great circumstances and they had a slot and they needed someone to fill out that writer's contract. And so they were just like, Oh fuck, get Weiger. And so that was basically it. They, They knew I was available. So I got in there and I worked on that show and 
had a great time. I mean, like it was it was super duper fun. This was season one. And I think it was only on there. I was finishing out someone's contract. So I think it was only there for 10 weeks. And I had another job lined up in the fall. I was going to go straight to working on this NBC show called Mission Control, where I'd been hired as a staff writer. Um, and this was a scripted show. This was scripted half hours. Basically, Anchorman at NASA was the idea with Kristen Ritter was the star. And and so I was set to go to that. And then so I finished my at midnight contract. And then like three days before I was supposed to start the show, at a show Mission Control, I got a call that, that it had been canceled. So the, so I le- ended up leaving this job to go take this other job that mm-hmm. I ne- never ended up working a day at. So was that oh was that like did Mission Control go for like a season? No, they they yeah. canceled it before they began writing. Wow. So it was a kind of thing. I was still under contract, so I still got my contract mm-hmm. paid out. They they paid a full writers' room. Their, their contracts to, to not, not write the show <laughs> wow. because they didn't want to shoot any episodes and they didn't want to air them, and, which was insane, but it was like that sometimes network logic is like they decide, oh, we're going to cut our losses in this very wasteful way. And that, that can't be... <laughs> That can't be like too long after they uh, picked up the pilot, right? Yeah, it was, it was basically one of those things where they picked up the pilot and then the executives changed and then they didn't uh, want this okay. pilot that the previous exec- executives had bought anymore. That makes sense, yeah. yeah. Wow. So then you did you go back to Admin Night? Yeah, let's see. What did I do after that? I don't know if I went straight back to Admin Night. I think I actually went back to... What the fuck did I do? Did I go back to Funnier Die again? Jesus <laughs> Christ. I think I went back to Funnier Die again. And then I went to... I think I went to Comedy Bang Bang again... And then I went back to At Midnight. Wait, did I? <laughs> I? At some point, I went back to both Funny or Die and Comedy Bang Bang. And then I went back to At Midnight. And then I was At Midnight for a while. Why did I leave again? Because I left At Midnight twice. Oh, okay, okay. I'm remembering everything now. Okay, so yeah. So that's what happened. So I, so I, lost, I didn't have that job. And then so I like, didn't have a job. And then Comedy Bang Bang Season 4, they hired me for one half of it. So I went to County Bang Bang too because it was the forty episode season. So I worked on it for a thirteen week period to write, help write twenty episodes. So I worked on that season, and then after that, I uh, went back to At Midnight and I worked around At Midnight for a while, and then got to then from there. The next time I left At Midnight was to so much of this podcast is just me remembering my own IMDb, <laughs> which I could have looked up and like had a been a refresher in advance. But it's also like I feel like so much of this is like. Is like, oh yeah, I worked at this job for thirteen weeks. Then I worked another job for thirteen weeks. Then it was back to the original job for thirteen more weeks. You know, what I mean, it's just like so much. Like, it, I, I've heard this described once as the, the way the these jobs work is just your Tarzan swinging on vines. You're just sort of like holding onto one as long as possible, and then you you hope another one's there. And oh, you got that one. You're holding onto that one for as long as you can. You know. Yeah. And that's sort of how it feels at times, just just mentally uh, recalling all this. But yeah, so I, I worked on. Comedy Bang Bang, super fun. And then going, ping ponging between that and At Midnight, because they're totally different tones, they're totally different aesthetics. And I like both shows, and both shows are super fun to work on. Totally different rooms, too, just in terms of like the kind of people that would be there. You know, used to be sketch people versus people that are largely. From the people from the stand-up world, and so it was. It was super. I actually found that probably one of the more useful periods when I was trying to do both of those back and forth. Just going like, okay, we're going to this absurd sort of anti-comedy world where you know we can take these these big thing these big chances, and if something doesn't work, but it's just sort of like bizarre, that's still a success from our standpoint. Um, versus to to the place where like, okay, we're going to do these shows that need hard jokes that are going to air the same night. And we're going to try to make an audience of tourists laugh 
you know, or an audience that's got a lot of like, you know, paid extras in it. We're going to try to make them laugh with our jokes about what's going on in the news. It's a totally different muscle. Right. And also just having to write like hard, sharp jokes, not anti-comedy jokes is like, you know, something that you don't actually get a lot of training doing at UCB. It's a little bit of it of, of that's more of a stand up skill. And so it was really, really useful, and I feel like it made me a much better writer to be challenged to do that every single day when I was working at it at midnight and also working with some of the funniest joke writers mm-hmm. I've ever met. Uh, you mentioned that you were, you were kind of ping-ponging a little yeah. bit. Is that, uh, is that something that, you, that, that happens usually for most writers, or is that rare, rare? I think it depends. I think I had a unique set of circumstances where I had, a, like I mentioned earlier, I had other jobs lined up, which sort of led to me, you know, I had like a planned departure and then things went awry. So mm-hmm. I think if, I think absent that, I think if I didn't have that job at mission control lined up, I might've never left at midnight. I might've just worked there continuously because that I left to take that job and that job didn't happen. I had the opening to take comedy bang, bang. And so I, for me, I just kind of say yes to things. That's kind of been my perspective of like, Oh, okay. I have this job opportunity. Okay. Yeah. I'll do this job and I'll figure out how to do it once I start working there. And that's pretty much served me well in terms of staying employed. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you were uh, on at midnight, when you were writing jokes, would you uh, like write a bunch of jokes, or would you write fewer jokes and like really focus in on them? I think you you it was it was kind of a volume business mm-hmm. because there are two aspects of that. One is you're writing the host copy, you're writing what Chris Hardwick's going to say, and. So that is writing to – anytime you're writing in, in for a show with a host, you're trying to write the host's voice a little bit and knowing that the host is going to, to change it and massage it a little bit as is their right and at, at, as will make the show better because these are all these are all funny people who work in those jobs. And so in that – and when you're writing the host copy, I feel like you're trying to maybe have – you know, you're trying to have a good number of jokes in there. I mean if you're trying to have like – I, I, I don't know the exact rate, but it felt like a joke every other sentence or a joke every three jokes per paragraph of copy mm-hmm. felt like what I, what I was roughly leaning into. So, you know, you'd write a thing that would have maybe, you know, it, it would be a minute of copy or 30 seconds of copy. <clears throat> and it would have maybe four to six jokes in there. And you just try you try to make them all as good as possible. And and then the other element of it was writing the comedian material which is what the comics would say when they were on the air. And so that was usually you were writing a huge, uh, a large number of generic examples. So you're writing a lot that anyone could say. And then if you were also writing with a comedian, if you were helping them prep to be on the show, you would help them write something that was specific to their voice. Mm-hmm. So yeah, in both cases, it was kind of like a, you're trying to make everything as good as possible, but if you're talking quantity versus quality, it is kind of a quantity over quality mm-hmm. sort of thing, just because there's... It's one of the most. It's one of the densest shows in terms of jokes. There were just so many jokes on it at midnight that you just wanted to try to give as many options as possible. And, and was was writing uh, all those jokes was that kind of a, a grind? I mean, it could have been, but I feel like that job was very fun, and everyone there was super fun, and there was a, like super fun to work with and super funny and had different perspectives that you would always get surprised with someone else's ideas. So. That, for me, kept it from being the grind it might have been under different circumstances. I mean, it was just like a very, very great staff to work with. And so that muted a lot of what what of the monotony that might have been there otherwise. And uh, you were there just recently because the show ended, right? Yeah, I was there for the final episode. When, when you heard the show was ending, was that like a surprise? I don't feel like anyone was blindsided. 
But I don't think anyone just took it in stride either. Like everyone was sort of like, oh, okay. You know, like I, I, I think people knew that the way that the, the show's season was approaching its end and we hadn't heard about a renewal and the closer you get to that date, the, the less likely it is that it's going to come back because if they're going to do a renewal and they're really excited about something, they'll usually do that early. So, and, and I think we'd also gotten just sort of the general vibe from the network there been so much turmoil and turnover at, at Comedy Central that we that we it felt like they were maybe going to make some decisions to go in a different direction. But I can't claim to know the exact behind the scenes machinations in terms of what led to the show continuing or not. I can say that I never heard the word canceled. I always heard the show is ending, which to me suggested that there was some sort of mutual decision among the creative side of the set of the show and the network to sort of be like, you know what, maybe this is the, the right time to, to say goodbye to this thing that, right. that's been on the air for, for several years. So, but you know, again, that's all inference on my part, mm-hmm. but yeah, I, I, no one was, no one was blindsided. People were very disappointed and saddened because it was a very show to work on, a very good show to work on. And it's just tough to find jobs in this industry period as you, as you, as a lot of people no doubt know, but uh, yeah, no one would, uh, shock wasn't the vibe. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, as a writer, and you know, as a guy who's like working, you know, get for money. I mean, is that like a crazy position to be in? Like, oh, this job that was pretty consistent is now gone. Right. Especially this time of year, because this isn't necessarily when things are, are gearing up to start again. Mm-hmm. And so, I may be looking at the first. I've been very, very lucky since you know 2000 to 2011 to work pretty steadily to work. Pretty much continuously with, with some gaps, but I, you know, I might be looking at the first prolonged period of unemployment I've faced in some time, which is a thing that's, that's a little bit, you know, it's, it's, it's scary for anyone. Um, thankfully, I think like if you work in this industry long enough, you start to always anticipate that possibility and you make preparations for that. So, you know, it, it's for me, it's not like going to be something that's, that's going to be. Uh, perilous in the short term, but you know, I'd, yeah, I'd like to be working again for sure. Uh, real quick, I want to talk about Party Over Here. Real yeah. quick, you were the head writer. Yes. How, how do you get hired uh, as a head writer for a show like that? Um, I kind of had to be talked into it uh, because I mean, head writer is a lot of work, and it's a job where you know the thing about head writer is it sounds like you have full creative control, and y- it's not really the case. There are going to be executive producers there's going to be you know the the network they're going to be depending on who the talent of the show is the talent who is going to have more say and more input than you do so it, it's it's a thing where it seems like it's it seems like it's more authority i think to people like they hear the title oh head writer you're the person in charge of the show but it's not really the case it's it's a little bit more of a managerial middle management sort of position where you're kind of the conduit between the writing staff and the the people who are running the show. So it's a lot of work. It's a lot, a lot of work. It's a lot of responsibility. Um, but that one came via Paul Shear and the Lonely Island had, um, and then the executives over there at, at the production company, which is also called, called Party Over Here, had um, just met with me a couple of times and, and sort of had asked me to, to do this and, and thought I would be a good fit for it. And ultimately, I said yes and took the opportunity. The, the difficult thing for me, besides from aside from, okay, this is going to be a, a job that's a lot of work. This is a show where they have basically the, the, the what they have is like we're going to make a sketch show, but they don't really know what it is. You know, I mean, it's like a pretty it's a pretty general 
um, pitch that they sold and, and were taking to series without any sort of cast or without any sort of like firm concept by the time I joined. And then also like leaving at midnight, which I didn't want to do uh, because I really, really liked that job and was very comfortable there and, and everyone was super duper nice. So, but that's basically how that came about. And, and I ended up saying yes, ultimately, because it, it seemed like a good fit for my skills and had the potential to maybe be something good depending on how it went. And so you were brought in before the talent was there. So did you have any say in, in that process? I can't say that, that I was like the person deciding who was getting hired or not. But I, I can say that I uh, love that the cast that the show had. I, I, loved the, I, I loved all of them. Allison Rich, Jessica McKenna, Nicole Byer. I thought were just, they were so, so funny. And they had... You know, such distinct voices and different voices with some overlap as comedians that I thought they 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 did a great job carrying so much of the show. I mean, like so much of them was on them. So, and then uh, Marcus Ray and Carl Tart, who were the the supporting cast, I thought they were also fantastic and and super great to work with. So yeah, no, I I I, I had more input in terms of of fig- helping to figure out who the writers' room was, which was all you know which was a great room. Uh, Lauren McGuire, who I'd worked with at Comedy Bang Bang. Ryan Perez, who I'd worked with at Funny or Die and, and known from UCB for many years, who I think is, I mean, for me, he's, he's one of my favorite comedy writers. I think he's just amazingly talented. Um, Heather Ann Campbell, who's who's great and just a, such a distinct, specific voice. And then Yamara Taylor, who is awesome and has had so much uh, so much success in her career um, since that show and, and was just so funny and was, was just such a such an important part of that room. Um, everyone, like I like the four of them, and it was just four writers for a, a half-hour sketch show is an insanely small room. Like yeah. we, we really needed six to eight writers. Um, At midnight has eight writers, and that's you know, that's not a sketch show. The the, the writing is a little bit more. There's there's just less write less scripting to do because it's a little bit more banter and and you know host a bit bit more of a hosted program. It's different than a sketch show where basically everything has to be scripted. So the amount that the the, the four of them were able to accomplish along with me, um, it w- I was very impressed by them and it was great to work with them. And that was that was one of my favorite parts of the of that experience was just being to a part of that room. You mentioned that you uh, had some say in hiring the writers. Yeah, what was that uh, process like? Um, so here's the thing, and this maybe goes towards my thoughts on labor in general, but also towards what I think of, of uh, WGA's policies. I'm a big WGA supporter. The packets that a lot of shows require are technically in violation of union rules. Right. Like you're not supposed to be it's to ask anyone to submit any specific bit of material. So what I asked of people who wanted to write for the show and what I also asked for people who I reached out to and were like, hey, maybe it would be cool if like, you know, hey, are you interested in maybe writing for this? Can you send something over for people to look at? I just said, send over a packet of some of your favorite sketches. And I, so I tried to keep it as general as possible, partly because, uh, you know, like I, I, I care about those rules, but also because like I feel like it's, it's a little bit of an unfair thing to a young writer or to someone who wants a job to say like, hey, do a bunch of free work for this one specific job opportunity that you can't reuse later. That you're because you're writing specific bits that are being asked for um, for that are that are specific to this show. This isn't something that you're going to be able to shoot as your own video later. 
you know, and so yeah, I was like, hey, send send us some of your best stuff that's representative of uh, what you write. And then I also, if anyone had any videos, I was also like, send over some videos too, because I think those are always useful to to watch. And a lot of times for a lot of times execs when they're reading packets they, they have a harder time understanding the comedy on the page but if you just show right. them a video of a funny sketch they'll get it right away and what were you like looking for when you were reading those uh, packets just funny and distinct voices yeah. just people who made me laugh and you know also just just part of I think part of the hiring process um, and again you know I wasn't the, the person with sole say so over who's getting hired or not although I was the everyone there was all my first choices I was I was over the moon with with the room we got um, the I, I think just a big part of it is also like thinking like okay who is going to who am I going to want to work with and part of that comes from people you know people you meet with and and you sort of get their general sort of vibe but also just sort of you can get a lot of that from someone's writing and be sort of like oh, okay this person is very funny and distinct and they offer something specific and that's the kind of person i want to see what their brain is like uh you, you've done sketch on stage mm-hmm. on for the web and, and yeah. television what are like the differences on those um an internet audience is very impatient and mm-hmm. they take everything at face value like you're just not going to be able to get something to work that's got like a little bit of a like oh this is a this is a winkingly ironic thing you know like like here's right. our take this is actually a um, yeah this this sketch seems sexist but it's actually an ironic take on sexism like the the an internet audience is just going to be outraged by that and they're just going to think it's sexist and uh, yeah maybe they're right I mean maybe maybe a lot of those those ironic takes on things are just excuses for people to 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 say it to do problematic comedy but it, that that's a that's a separate discussion but yeah an internet audience is very impatient and they will always take things at face value I would say the big thing I had with internet stuff it goes back to that Matt Besser thing of like get to the premises as quickly as possible and have this sketch title be the title be what's funny about it I would have a lot of success just being like we're just going to get we're going to say what the sketch is what's supposed to be funny here and we're going to get to the comedy as quickly as possible within 10-15 seconds or else someone's going to click away um, for TV the audience is a little bit more engaged and a little bit more patient and depending on the show you know you can take a little bit more time with it and then with stage I mean like I feel like you have the most time to sort of like let something breathe and, and you can make something very dialogue driven I, I was very much anytime I write for TV and sketch uh, for a video I always try to think of it cinematically and I always try to think of the the you know I'm an editor so I just try to think of the edit when I'm writing it and like you know what are we going to be cutting to here um, try to make use of multiple locations try to make it feel like a video a filmed piece as much as possible whereas a sketch you can take a little bit more time and you can have just a five minute scene in an office whereas an, as an internet video that's just going to be so fucking boring no one's going to watch it mm-hmm. unless it's got some spectacular element to it uh, so Party Over Here was uh, canceled after one season. Yes. Uh, why do you uh, think that was? I think the network didn't know what they were getting, and I think they sort of uh, they agreed to the idea of, oh, this is a sketch show from the Lonely Island and Paul Shear. We're very excited to see that, and then and they loved the scripts that we delivered, and they loved the live shows that we saw, and then when they started getting edits, I think they were they were confused by what it was, and I think they never really had an had an overall vision of the show. And again, this is all inference. I wasn't privy to any of these discussions. Um, but yeah, I think they I think they really didn't know what to do. And also some of the notes we would get indicated that they didn't really understand sketch. We got a lot of story <laughs> notes on sketch. Oh, wow. And it was just sort of like, well, you know, anyone who writes sketch knows that sketch is the opposite of, of storytelling. You're not telling a story. You're constructing a pattern. 
you, you can't really like apply the idea of uh, traditional things of character motivation and character development to a to a three minute filmed piece. I mean, it just it just doesn't work in the same way. So, so yeah, we got a lot of notes that were just like very hard to address and that indicated they didn't really understand the show. But also, I think like if you look at Fox, it was their only late night show. They don't have like a weekly. They don't have like a nightly talk show during weekdays. They don't have anything uh, since Mad TV, which which went off the air. You know how many decades ago? And then they had an ADHD, which was an animated show. They don't really have anything in that, in late night. So I think they don't really know how to approach that space. That you know, again, I, maybe I shouldn't be shit talking a network as as lightly as that is shit talking. But <laughs> I mean, like, I, I I was a little frustrated dealing with a network because they seemed to not know what they want. And it was just sort of the perspective of like, oh, we don't know what we want, but we know we don't want this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's just a difficult thing to work with. Yeah, that's difficult. Is, is, it, is it hard to, de- uh, to take notes like that? Yeah, I mean, especially if you, if you know you can't fight them. Because you try to fight them on a call, and then you reach the point where you try to fight them in an email, and you reach the point of like, okay, they're just not budging. We just have to do this. And you just know you have to, do, you have to make this compromise that's going to make something worse. Mm-hmm. Which happens all the time in entertainment, but it's it's extra frustrating to be like, ah, this would be good if we could do this, but they're making me do this other thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what would you like to be doing next? Do- Doughboy's TV show? Ha ha ha, oh man. I think that might kill us. Um, <laughs> I Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I, that's a good question. I, I probably should figure that out. I've always, <laughs> been, I've always been terrible about planning my career and having a vision for what I should be doing. I've just kind of like just taken the opportunities that are in front of me. Mm-hmm. And... Yeah, I guess at some point I'm, I should have some sort of idea for what I should be doing. I don't know. I should probably write a movie or something. I don't know, Alan. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, so we end every episode with uh, my favorite segment. I do a sketch pitch, or I do a pitch of some sort. This is a oh, sketch yeah. pitch. And then you just give me your thoughts on it. Love it. Uh, so you, you know the uh, the American Airlines magazine? Yes. So it's like, it's like, a, it's like half, like, kind of very... Uh, dumb observations and then half like paid ads right. to be in there so I, I just thought it'd be funny if it was like a, a that like that newsroom of like American Airlines and so it'd be like you know breaking news like Trump Trump's golfing again and then like the guy's like alright you find out the golf resort you find out what restaurants are nearby <laughs> and stuff like that that's great yeah I like that a lot yeah that feels like there's there's a lot you can mine there I mean I would just even say like the the ad element you threw you threw in there it yeah. seems like that might be difficult to convey in that pitch or mm-hmm. convey in that sketch I would just say maybe you don't even need that and you can just sort of talk about if you wanted to use that you can be like like uh, the, like whatever we can't you know we can't, we're going to offend the guys who are we're selling the world's largest Sudoku. You know what I mean? Like, you'd have that just <laughs> yeah. be, like, an element of it, but I wouldn't mm-hmm. have that be the focus. It feels like you'd just be enough on just, like, the, the shitty uh, whatever. We got an interview with Marilyn Voss Savant of Parade Magazine, you know, like, whatever <laughs> yeah, their yeah. gets are. You could just, just have it focused on that. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, cool. That's it. I like it. Uh, anything you want to plug? Uh, you can check out my podcast, Doughboys, the podcast about chain restaurants. It doesn't... Uh, no, it, do, it actually probably does probes the depths of my despair in the same way that this <laughs> interview did. So, yeah, you can check that out. It, it, new episodes on Thursday on Feral Audio, hosted by me and, and my buddy Mike Mitchell uh, from the Birthday Boys. Very funny dude. Patreon uh, for Tuesday episodes? Yeah, there's there, there's bonus episodes on Tuesday. But, you know, if you just if you haven't listened to the podcast, <laughs> don't worry about diving into the Patreon. Listen to the mainline episodes. See if you like it. <laughs> if you want to make a commitment beyond that, that's, uh, that's up to you. One of the best podcasts out there. Oh, God bless you, Alan. All right, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thank you for having me.
Thanks for listening to this episode of On Comedy Writing. I want to thank Nick Doss for supplying the sweet tunes, Zachary Glassman for giving us the awesome logo, and Boardwalk Audio for hosting us. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes, and like and follow On Comedy Writing on Facebook and Twitter. See you next week. Audio podcast. For more information and shows, visit boardwalkaudio.com. Don't forget to rate and subscribe now.